Okay, hopefully you all got a, a kind of a, a guide for tonight, a note sheet that you can follow along with there. There are several blanks for you to fill in as we go. Um, the, the, the notes will not be on the screens behind me, so that means you have to listen, okay? You got you to gotta engage, and as I tell my daughters, right, put on your listening ears and, um, and pay attention. And if you miss a blank, it's okay. I, I will fill that in for you after the service for a nominal fee. Um, that will go to missions. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll give it to you for free, but if you want to give to missions, Hey, we'll, we'll, we'll put it towards missions. All right. The gospel of Mark subtitle, son of God. Okay. Let's, let's begin with kind of the, the perfunctory bits, right? The author, the date, uh, general summary, major themes in the gospel that we're going to look through. And then, and then we will, we will hit the content. Okay. The author of the gospel of Mark, um, as early church tradition has it is Mark. You guys are so smart. Um, right. Early church tradition, tradition dating back to Papias, who was a, an early church father, uh, who died around the year 130 AD. So about a hundred years or so after Jesus ministry, Papias indicates that the gospel is written by John Mark, who was a fellow missionary of Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas actually separated from J- John Mark at one point because, uh, John Mark didn't want to continue on with them in ministry. And so he went back to his home and Paul for a while did not want to have anything to do with John Mark. Uh, but Peter did. And Peter took John Mark kind of under his wing uh, as a partner in ministry. Uh, and then later on, John Mark would uh, team back up again with Paul later on in Paul's ministry. And so that relationship was reconciled. But so John Mark is the, the author of, of this letter. Papias, that church father, indicates that Mark was not an eyewitness to the life of Christ. Okay, He was not among the disciples. He was not one of the 12 disciples, um, not one who witnessed the events of Jesus' life, but that his gospel is an accounting of Peter's sermons and Peter's recollections of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection. Okay, So Peter, apostle of Jesus, close follower of Jesus, meets up with John Mark after Jesus has died and been raised again, ascended into heaven. Those who are doing ministry together, John Mark is hearing the sermons that Peter is preaching. He's listening to the stories that Peter is telling of his time with Jesus, those sorts of things. And he says, the church needs this. And so he writes it down. Okay. So he writes the gospel. The date of the writing of this gospel, most scholars believe, is sometime between the mid-50s to the early 60s A.D. I don't mean 1950s and 1960s, right? Like 50 years after the birth of Christ, more or less. Mid-50s to early 60s. It's hard to say exactly, but sometime in that area. Mark is considered the first of the Gospels to be written. There are four Gospels in the canon of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew was not first, although he's placed first uh, in the New Testament. Mark was uh, most likely written first, and it's the shortest of the four Gospels. It's only 15 chapters, okay, about half the length of, of some of the others. There's a lot in Mark that is found both in Matthew and in Luke, and often verbatim. The exact words that Mark uses are found in Matthew and in Luke, in their Gospels, or at least in a very similar style, very similar wording. A lot of the same events occur in those three Gospels. As such, most scholars believe that both Matthew and Luke used Mark's Gospel that was already written and circulating as source reference for the writing of their Gospels. So Matthew and Mark doing research, or Matthew and Luke, excuse me, doing research and writing their Gospels, they're using Mark as a resource, a trusted biography of Jesus, uh, to write their gospels. And so since Mark and Matthew and Luke have so much in, in uh, so much similar content and generally follow the same sort of chronology of Jesus life, the presentation of his ministry, they are called the synoptic gospels or or the gospels of the same perspective. Okay? They're the, the, the one-view Gospels, if you will. They all kind of follow Jesus' life in, in more or less the same general way. They're called synoptic. John's Gospel differs greatly from the synoptics, both in, in its style, in its organization, and in its core themes. Right? The, the presentation of Jesus' life and the events are not altogether different in John, but they are sort of differently portrayed, if you will. John is intending to do something very specific in his Gospel, and I look forward to preaching the entire Gospel of John um, in, in coming months because it's an exciting Gospel as well. Mark likely wrote his gospel from Rome for the church generally. It's just, this is stuff that the church needs to have. And so I'm going to write it down. 
and we're going to start circulating it. And because the church was at that time composed of a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, there's a lot of stuff in Mark, a lot of content in Mark that explains Jewish customs and Jewish phrases for non-Jewish readers or hearers of this gospel. So as you're reading through Mark and he gets to, you know, Feast of Passover, Feast of Weeks or something like that, and he gives some sort of explanatory statement about what that is, you can understand that he's doing that for a reason, to help his readers who are not Jews, who didn't grow up following Jewish tradition, to understand what's going on. The purpose of Mark's gospel is explicitly to narrate the life, the teaching, the substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? If I had to s- summarize all of Mark in one short paragraph, I would do it this way, and you should have this in your notes. Mark's gospel is the story of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, summarizing his earthly ministry and climaxing in Jesus' substitutionary death for sinners at the cross and in his resurrection. The gospel is action-oriented. It moves from one scene to the next with great speed. In fact, Mark uses the word immediately over 40 times in his gospel. Mark uses the word immediately like teenage girls use the word like. Okay? It's, just, it's all over the place. And so immediately Jesus went here, and immediately this happened, and immediately this. The next time you read through Mark, which I encourage you to do this week, it'll probably take you about an hour, maybe an hour and a half in one sitting to do it. Highlight or underline or circle every time you see the word immediately, and you will find that all of a sudden your entire gospel of Mark is all marked up, and all you did was look for one thing. Okay? Mark's primary concern is with revealing the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, is the theological center of the gospel. Everything about Mark's gospel revolves around Mark 8, 29. Every event leading up to this point is around the question of Jesus' identity, and everything after that point is a confirmation of Jesus' divine identity and task. Okay, so Mark 8, 29, the theological center of this gospel. Major themes that we'll see. First, Jesus is the Son of God sent to suffer in the place of sinners. Jesus is the Son of God sent to suffer in the place of sinners. This is a theme that is recounted throughout the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see it in three specific places, um, all surrounding Peter's confession, actually, uh, later on tonight. Secondly, um, among major themes, is that to follow Jesus is to be a servant like Jesus. We said this morning, uh, we used the old adage, like father, like son, like redeemer, like redeemed. That is that those of us who are redeemed in Christ by our faith in him ought to look like him. And so if Jesus came to suffer for the sake of saving sinners, we too likewise ought to expect to be servants of people in our lives as those who are redeemed by faith in Christ. Well, where does the gospel of Mark fit? In the general scope of redemption history. Uh, in my notes, um, I accidentally still have Genesis in here. I hope you don't in yours. But if you do, just cross it out and write Mark. Mark in the scope of redemption history, right? We, we said there's four major movements in the redemptive story, the story of, of God rescuing our souls uh, throughout all of Scripture. There's creation, where God creates everything, uh, all the heavens and the earth, man in his own image. There's the fall, which we looked at last time when we looked at Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve eat that fruit that they were forbidden bidden to eat from, bringing sin and death and destruction into the world. And then from that point on, God is all about bringing about this plan of redemption, saving sinful people from themselves and from their sin. Okay, And then uh, in the end, we know that God will consummate. He will make all things right uh, in his timing and in his way. He will uh, finally and forever judge everyone, the living and the dead. And those who are redeemed in Christ will live forever with him in heaven. And those who are apart from Christ and not trust him for salvation uh, will spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. So Mark, in the scope of redemption history, centers really on that aspect of redemption, right? This is the plan of redemption coming, full, full, coming, uh, coming to, to, to full uh, completion here, coming into full focus. So if you have a pencil or a pen or a crayon or a magic marker, whatever it is that you're working with, make a little box or a circle around that word redemption. That's where uh, Mark lies, generally, in the scope of redemption history throughout Scripture. 
Next, reading Mark. What should we do as we read the Gospel of Mark? Some helpful tips for reading this Gospel. First, understand the genre. Genre just means kind of literature. Okay, There's lots of kinds of literature out there in the world. We have poetry. We have um, uh, letters. We have biography. We have general history, things like that. Um, we saw last time in Genesis that the book of Genesis falls into the genre of historical narrative. Well, the genre of Mark is gospel. It is a gospel. And the gospel genre is unique among the other genres of Scripture. There's stuff in gospel that's not uh, altogether like other, other genres of Scripture. It's part biography, telling the story of the life of an individual, part historical narrative, telling the events that happened as they took place, but it's also highly specialized in its focus. It's got a purpose. The Gospels all have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all have the revelation of Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Jewish Messiah as their central theme and purpose. That's what makes them distinct. That's why they are Gospels, because they center in and around the revelation of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the promised Messiah. While each of the four Gospels differ in their perspectives on Jesus' life and ministry, they all hold in common that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of a divine Savior King. And so when you're reading the Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark this week, as I'm encouraging you to do, ask yourself the following questions as you read the Gospel to help you understand it and help you to apply it rightly to your life. Ask these three things. First, what is this text telling me about who Jesus is? We know that the Gospels are about Jesus, so when we're reading it, look to see what the Gospels are telling you about who He is. His identity, His ability, His power, His authority. Second, Ask yourself this question. What is this text revealing to me about myself? Who am I? What is my nature? What do I need from Jesus? Very often you'll find about yourself that you, like me, are a sinner in need of a Savior. Okay? That's going to be front and center throughout the Gospels. Third, ask yourself this question. What does this text, what does this Gospel reveal about how I should be following Jesus? Jesus who is our Savior. Jesus who died and was raised again to save us from our sins, calls us into a relationship of discipleship with him, to follow him, to be like him. And so as we read the Gospels, as we see Jesus' life on display, and we see even the, the things that he is teaching his disciples about what it means to follow him in that day, right, we should ask ourselves, what, what is this text revealing to me about how I should be following Jesus even today? Okay, now for the fun part. And get into the message of Mark. This is where we, where we start flying over, flying over this text, okay? The message of Mark, and I've mapped it out through three confessions, three declarations of who Jesus is that we see throughout the text. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, Mark 8.29, and then Mark 15.39. Okay? So let's start at the beginning in Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning. This is what Mark writes, first verse of his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Thank you, Mark. That was very clear. I know exactly what this is about, right? This introductory phrase to the gospel tells us precisely what Mark is writing about. In this short statement, we get the content of the book. We know what's coming. First of all, it's good news. This is the beginning of the gospel. That word gospel is the Greek word euangelion, which means good news. Literally means good news. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And we also receive the identifying information about the person at the center of the book. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. The Christ is Jesus' title. It's not his last name, okay? It's his title. He's the promised Messiah. He's the very Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this, uh, this identifying, uh, these identifying characteristics of Jesus are uh, highlighted, are affirmed in two places very quickly uh, in the next few verses of Mark's gospel. In Mark chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus goes to John the Baptist to be baptized, identifying himself and his ministry with that of repentance, of turning from sin to follow God in obedience. Now, Jesus had no sin to repent of himself, but he's setting an example for those who follow him, that they should turn from their sin to follow God. And so at his um, baptism, he comes up out of the water, Mark chapter 1, verse 11, and a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And then Jesus, in his ministry, begins proclaiming this, this uh, constant message over and over and over again that Mark says one time, 
uh, at the beginning of, of his gospel. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 say this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, this is what Jesus was saying in his ministry, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sins. Believe the good news that the Son of God is among you and that he's come to pay for your sins. Okay? That's what Jesus' ministry was all about. So we've already got a summation in Mark chapter 1, verse 15 of what Jesus' ministry is going to be like. Okay, Now, from this point, Mark chapter 1, verse 16 through Mark chapter 8, verse 26, uh, Mark writes about the early phases of Jesus' ministry. And the early phases of Jesus' ministry are all really about, if I, if I could summarize it one way, would be demonstrations of Christ's authority. Demonstrations of Jesus' authority. And he demonstrates his authority several different ways, at least three. One, in teaching. He demonstrates his authority through teaching. And, and I've pulled four different examples of where he does this, okay? Mark chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. The example of Jesus demonstrating his authority by teaching in the synagogues. Those verses say this, They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. And not as the scribes. The scribes were the, the religious leaders, the rabbis, those that had a, an expert understanding of the Old Testament and were teaching those who were in the synagogues about the Old Testament, that sort of thing. When Jesus comes teaching in the synagogues, the people recognize he's teaching with authority that even the scribes don't have. This, this guy's, we've we got to listen up, right? Put on our listening ears and, and catch what he's saying. So he teaches in the synagogues. He also teaches along the way. In Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, we have this instance where Jesus and his disciples are walking along on the Sabbath, and the disciples are hungry, and they're walking through a grain field. And so they start plucking the little kernels of grain off the top of the, uh, uh, the kernels of wheat off the top of the stalks there, just to kind of munch on, like grape nuts, okay? Just grabbing a little snack along the way. And the Pharisees see it, and they're like, what are you guys doing? Don't you know you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, right? Taking this extremist view, extremist um, interpretation of, uh, of the law to not work on the Sabbath uh, to, to mean that you can't even pluck a couple uh, kernels of grain off of uh, off the top of a stalk of wheat to eat when you're hungry on the Sabbath. And Jesus takes this opportunity to teach and to teach with authority, saying this in uh, chapter 2, verse 28, he tells the Pharisees, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus says, look, when, when God created the Sabbath for man, the seventh day, the day of rest, he didn't create it as a thing to be worshipped, as a thing to give your life to, but a thing that might give life, right? In resting on the seventh day, we recognize that even God rested as king over his creation on the seventh day. And so we take that day as a personal day of rest and of worship, but that doesn't mean we don't do anything. And it doesn't mean that we starve ourselves if there's some grape nuts handy, right? Jesus says, you don't get it, so understand this. So he teaches in the synagogues, he teaches along the way, uh, teaching about the Son of Man and the Sabbath. He even teaches in his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, or uh, 2 through 6 say this, On the Sabbath he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done, in his, done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So Jesus, even though he has authority and is teaching with authority in the synagogue in his hometown, is rejected by his neighbors and his friends who saw him grow up because they can't see him as one with authority. He's, he's showing his authority, and yet for them, it's not right. And, and we know that they are wrong, right? Jesus is not wrong. They are wrong, but they don't get it. But still, he's demonstrating his authority to teach even in his hometown. Fourth and finally, in terms of teaching, we see him teaching uh, and showing his authority by teaching in conflict with religious rulers. In Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, we have another instance where Jesus is clashing with the Pharisees, uh, and they... Uh, uh, are taking issue with his disciples who are not washing their hands properly before they eat. Okay? Uh, and Jesus tells them, right, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of uh, man's heart, which is defiling evil thoughts and lust and all these sorts of things. 
And then he goes on to say this in Mark chapter 7, verse 9 and following. He said to them, you, to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is not the only time Jesus will come into conflict with the ruling leaders, with the Pharisees and the scribes in his ministry. It happens frequently, but this is just a really good example of it. Where he points to them placing tradition above the word of God and the letter of the law over the spirit of the law to show their hypocrisy. Right? So here you have the Pharisees who are saying to people, right, you must honor your father and mother. But if you decide that everything you have is dedicated to God, it's called Corbin. That's just kind of a, a word that they used to, to say dedicated to God. It's all dedicated to God. Uh, once you dedicate it to God, then you don't have to do anything for your mom or your dad. You don't have to do anything for them anymore. Forget about honoring them. Everything's Corbin, right? Jesus says, that's ridiculous. That's insane. How could, how could one dedicate everything in their life to God and then with that not do what God has called them to do in honoring their mother and their father? So you have a fine way. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So Jesus demonstrates his authority in his teaching. Secondly, Jesus, in his early ministry, demonstrates his authority through working miracles or wonder working. First, in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 through 28, we see Jesus. And this is not the, the only instance. Several times this happens. In his ministry, but in, in 23 through, 123 through 28, casting out unclean spirits. We talked about this this morning uh, from Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. This is, uh, this is what Mark um, uh, records happening as Jesus was casting out unclean spirits. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. This is Mark 1, 23. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, rebuked this demon, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out uh, with a loud voice, came out of the man. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Catch this, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So Jesus, in his casting out of unclean spirits, demonstrating that he is Lord, as we talked about this morning, Lord of even over evil. Lord of even over uh, evil spirits, demonic spirits. And at his word, they leave. At his word, they obey. Okay? Secondly, Jesus demonstrates his, uh, his authority in working miracles by healing the sick. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is the, uh, the story of the friends who have a, a paralyzed friend or a friend who is paralyzed. And they know that Jesus is at his home base in Capernaum. And they know that Jesus can heal their paralyzed buddy. So they get him on the bed and they take him to the house. And uh, because they are, are such courteous guests, they tear the roof off of the house and lower their friend down in. The house is crowded with people to see Jesus. And so the only way in is through the roof. So they, they tear apart the roof. They lower their friend down. And this is what happens in Mark chapter 2, verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were thus questioning within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sons are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth, to, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Catch this. Jesus is healing a man of his paralysis. But even Jesus healing this man of his paralysis, demonstrating his authority through healing the sick, he's also making a bigger statement. Not just that he can heal the sick, but that he can forgive sins. There was this common understanding in that day that those who had these, these uh, sort of permanent maladies, blindness, deafness, uh, paralysis, lameness, right? That that was a result, or people who were born with those sorts of things, it was, it was a result of some sort of sin that either they had committed or that somebody else had committed, okay? And so the friends bring this man to Jesus, and Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
So as to say, even though you are paralyzed, your sins are forgiven. Regardless of what people, regardless of what sins somebody thinks may have been committed to make you paralyzed, I'm forgiving you of your sins. You are absolved of your sins. He's telling this uh, to this man. And the Pharisees are all, all in a guff, right? And they have no idea what's going on. How can he say this? How can he forgive this man of sins? And Jesus knows what they're saying. And so he, so he sets up a dilemma for them. It's a dilemma of which is the more impossible. Right? Which is more difficult, to say, son, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, get up your, uh, rise, pick up your bed, and walk? Jesus says, these two things are relatively impossible. Okay? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And here's this guy who's been paralyzed for most, if not all, of his life. Right? Seems to be permanent. Which is the more easy thing to do? Right? And, and, and it's good that you don't have an answer, okay? Because that's, that was what Jesus was saying, right? which is easier. In reality, both are, are almost equally impossible. On the one hand, it would, it's relatively easy to say, sons or sin, son, your sins are forgiven, right? But how do we know if sins are really forgiven? How do we know? Can't tell, can't see sins being forgiven. It's not something we can touch, not something we can taste or handle or, or see with our eyes or whatever. But Jesus says this, so that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins... And then he stops mid-sentence, turns to the paralytic and says, Son, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. So Jesus says, I have authority to forgive sins, and I have authority to forgive, I demonstrate my authority to forgive sins by healing this man of his imposs- uh, impossibly, impossible to heal paralysis. Right? A fantastic demonstration of his authority. Then he also demonstrates his authority through working miracles by commanding nature. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. This is the event where Jesus and the disciples are going from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. Okay, in the middle of the night, there's this big storm that, that rages and the disciples are all freaking out because the boat is taking on water and Jesus is asleep in the boat. So they wake him up and say, Lord, you got to save us. And in Mark chapter 4, verse 40, we have this. He said to them, Jesus said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So Jesus calming the storm at sea causes the disciples to wonder, who is this man who, who commands nature? Well, we know the answer. The answer's already come to us in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. But he's demonstrating that very authority by working miracles. Thirdly, in terms of his demonstration of, of authority, he demonstrates his authority by sending, by sending Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 13, Jesus sends out the disciples. He sends them out in pairs to go do the kind of ministry that he's doing. In verses 7 and following, we get this. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Same message that Jesus was proclaiming. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Jesus has authority to send people in his name to do the kind of ministry that he himself does. Okay? He has authority as king, as Lord over everything, to delegate that authority to his disciples, to those to whom he wishes to do. And he does that with his disciples in that day, that they might go and proclaim the kingdom, that people need to repent and believe in Jesus, that they might be saved, and they go and they do that. Jesus has authority to give, and he gives that authority as sends his disciples. Now, for us, Jesus gives us authority in the same way in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. When he says, go therefore into all nations, uh, go therefore making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Jesus gives us authority to be about his work, about his ministry by proclaiming the gospel in the world in which we live, making new disciples, leading people to Christ, bringing them into the kingdom as children of God. He's given us authority to do that because he can, because he's Lord. Now, secondly, we come, to the, we come to the crux. You probably already filled out the middle. It's not the middle. It's the crux, the crux of Mark. Right? The crux comes from that, the word, the same word that we get, cross and crucifixion. It's, a, it's an intersection, a critical intersection. Mark chapter 8, verse 29, we, we have this. And he, Jesus, asked them, that is his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This, I said earlier, is the... Th- theological center of the gospel of Mark. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. This is right smack dab in the theological center of his gospel. But what's really interesting to me and really should be really interesting to all of us is the context in which this confession takes place. The confession on its own is remarkable, but the con- context in which it happens is, is really, really cool. I don't know how else to say it. So let's look at it. In Mark chapter 8, 
verses 16 through 21. The disciples are all together. They're in a boat. And, uh, and this is after Jesus has just fed 4,000 people. Previously in the gospel, he's fed 5,000 people, and all from meager portions, right? He takes five loaves and two fish, raises it to heaven and blesses it, and then they feed these thousands of people with baskets left over, like lots of leftovers after this feast. And the disciples are now in the boat uh, after he feeds the 4,000, and they've picked up seven baskets of, uh, uh, of leftovers, and they're grumbling that they don't have any food to eat. Because apparently, uh, whoever was in charge of bringing the leftovers forgot them on the seashore. So they don't know what to do. They got no lunch. And so Mark chapter 8, verse 16. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. We hungry. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes to see, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. (laughs) And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you still not understand? Having eyes to see, having ears to hear, do you still not see who you are with? In the very next episode, we have this miracle of Jesus giving eyes to see for uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and following. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes... Don't, don't spit on people's eyes, by the way. Okay? Don't, this is, we're not supposed to follow Jesus' example here. We're just observing things about Jesus and his power. Don't spit on people's eyes. That's a good way to get pink eye. Okay? So he spit on his eyes, and he laid his hands on him, and he asked him, Do you see anything? The man looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So he went from blind to like 2070 vision, okay? Then Jesus laid his hands on again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And catch this, he saw everything clearly. Mark chapter 8, verse 21, he says to disciples, do you still not understand? The very next episode, he goes to a blind man and heals this blind man, not just to see, but to see clearly. And then, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Who do people see me as? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Who do you see me as? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged him to tell no one about him. The confession of Peter that Jesus is the Christ is an astonishing confession. But it's, uh, it's astonishing on its own. But in its context, it's all the more beautiful. Because it's a display of Jesus giving eyes to see. Giving spiritual sight to his disciples to see and to perceive exactly who he is. Exactly what his identity is. And, and part of the reason that I love the Bible is I was an English major in college. And so I just love literature. I love reading. And I love good literature. And folks, the, the Bible is some of the best literature uh, on the face of the planet, if not the best. It's amazing how Mark constructs this gospel and puts these these events, not that, they, um, not that he made them up, but he places them in this order to reveal a spiritual truth that Jesus, without eyes to see, without spiritual eyes to see, we will always miss his identity. We will see him and we will miss who he is, but that he has the ability to give sight to the blind, to give spiritual sight to we who are spiritually blind, that we may see him for who he truly is, as the Christ, the Son of God. This is really cool. And so I hope that when you read Mark this week, that this just like smacks you right between the eyes like it did me. And from this point on, after Peter has this confession that Jesus is the Christ, once the apostles, once the disciples understand who Jesus is and his identity, the entire narrative shifts. There's a shift in the narrative in Mark. Previously, Jesus has been demonstrating his authority in his ministry. And now, after the confession of, of Jesus as Christ by Peter, we start moving really fast and really quickly to the cross. Okay? 
Immediately after this, Jesus starts teaching that the Christ must suffer for the sins of man. We haven't had anything like this in Jesus' teaching prior to this point. But now he starts teaching about what the Messiah must do. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. This is right after Peter's confession. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He says a similar sort of thing in Mark chapter 9, another similar thing in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 and 34. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus confirms this again with his disciples. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As soon as the disciples understand who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, Jesus starts teaching them about what it is the Christ must do. That he has come not to work miracles, not to cast out demons primarily, not to uh, teach or to send, but that he has come to suffer for the sins of man. And in like fashion, almost, par- almost in parallel places in, in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10, right after Jesus teaches about how the Christ must suffer, he also teaches his disciples that true disciples of the Christ must be servants like their master. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And so disciples, you also must serve. Look at Mark chapter 8, verses 30, the end of verse 34 and, and 35. If anyone should come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. In Mark chapter 10, verse 42, for example, Jesus called uh, them to him and said, This is after the disciples are grumbling about which one is greater and which one will sit at his right hand and his left in heaven. And Jesus says, That's not for you to decide, so stop it. Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, Jesus says. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So disciples, in your discipleship, you also give your lives in service to others, that they may know the King that they may know who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of God. From this point, the end of Mark chapter 10, beginning of chapter 11, Jesus is moving to the cross all the more quickly. And during that period, his authority begins to be challenged by the Pharisees and the ruling elite and others. From the point of Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, the events of Mark move quickly to Jerusalem, quickly to the cross. And and the kind of conflict that Jesus has with these ruling uh, religious rulers is, I think, exemplified in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12, where Jesus tells a parable. It says, as he began to speak to them in parables, he said, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. So he's kind of like a sharecropper, right? He owns a piece of property. He plants vineyards and then he rents it out. And so the people that are there renting out the vineyards will, um, will at harvest, will sell some of the produce. They'll keep some of the money for themselves and they'll give some of the profit back to the, back to the landowner. Uh, Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do then, Jesus asks? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This parable of the wicked tenants sums up the conflicts that Jesus has throughout his ministry with the religious rulers. They are the tenants, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. They are the tenants charged with keeping the master's vineyard, charged with caring for God's flock, his people. And they, the tenants, beat and kill the master's servants, God's prophets. And they will beat and even kill the master's own son. 
The Pharisees challenge Jesus because they fear him. They fear his growing influence over uh, his followers and those that are listening to Jesus. Certainly, were Jesus to continue in his ministry, they might lose their political and religious sway over the people. And so they conspire to have Jesus killed. He's a threat to their power. So he cannot continue to exist. And so very quickly after that, we have the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees conspiring with Judas, one of Jesus' twelve, to betray Jesus into their hands that he might be arrested and eventually put to death. In Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 50, we have the telling of, uh, of this moment of betrayal. And immediately, there's that word, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd, of sword, a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out of... Um, out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. But here the religious leaders and religious rulers intend for evil to arrest Jesus, to have him killed, will only ultimately fulfill God's will. Jesus says, day after day, when he's confronted by those who are arresting him, I was with you in the temple teaching. You never seized me. Never once did you threaten to take me in. But now, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let God's will be done. Jesus knows, even as he has taught his disciples, that this was what he came to do, to suffer. That God's promise of salvation through Christ's death in our place and for our sins, this is coming to full completion at this moment. And Jesus realizes it, he recognizes it, and he points it out to all those who are taking part in what's going on. And then in Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32, we have the crucifixion. Jesus is taken, he's tried at night, tried early in the morning, taken to the house of Pilate, who was the Roman governor over the area of Judea. And there he is condemned to be crucified. So they walk him out of the city and they nail him to a cross. They lift him up. He's there. He's stripped naked. He's beaten and bloodied and broken. And while he's there hanging on the cross, the chief priests and the scribes all come around him and they start mocking him. They say, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, let this king of Israel come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. The priests and the scribes in mocking Jesus this way, radically misunderstand two things, right? Jesus hanging on the cross, bleeding, dying, broken and beaten. They say, come on, Jesus, come on, Christ, King of Israel, come on down. And when you come down from the cross, then we'll see and we'll believe. That's all you got to do, man. But they misunderstand, misunderstand two critical things in their mockery. First, they misunderstand that this title, King of Israel, which they intend as mockery, is actually a declaration of truth. This is, this is what's really ironic about their mocking, that they're calling Jesus Christ, they're calling him king of Israel, so as to taunt him, so as to make fun of him, so as to belittle him, while all at the same time proclaiming exactly who he is. Even in their greatest attempts to hurl shame and ridicule upon Jesus, they're only able to unwittingly confess his true identity. But secondly, they misunderstand this, and painfully so. That if Jesus comes down off the cross, like they are taunting him, mocking him to do, which he is capable of doing, by the way, if Jesus comes down off the cross, he ceases to be the king that they so desperately need. If Jesus comes down off the cross, then those religious leaders, you and I, are forever in their sin. We are in our sin forever if Jesus comes down off that cross and does not die there. We are without hope of redemption if Jesus comes down off that cross. If Jesus gets down off the cross in Mark 15 and walks away, then you and I have no chance to be set free from the bondage of sin and death, church. That is truth. But praise be to God that Jesus stayed on that cross just a little while longer. That he endured the shame, the pain, the suffering in our place. That we deserve. We deserve that. We ought to look at Christ on the cross and not see Jesus on the cross, but see us on the cross. That's what we deserve. That's what sin looks like. Sin is dirty, ugly, nasty, rotten stuff. And that's what sin looks like. 
Jesus became sin for us and he paid our penalty on the cross. And he paid it in full because he stayed there till he was dead. Till the debt was fully paid. But there's good news and the good news comes in the finale. This third confession. And, and what follows in, in the book of Mark. Mark chapter 15, uh, verse 33 through Mark chapter 16, verse 8. In Mark 15, 39, we have the third confession. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. What did Mark say in Mark chapter 1, verse 1? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What did Peter say about Jesus in Mark chapter 8, verse 29? You are the Christ. And now the centurion who sees Jesus, who has just died on the cross, says, truly this man was the Son of God. Oh, I love Mark. Gosh, he's such a good writer. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 to 39, Jesus dies. He dies. And at the death of Jesus, two things happened. First, the veil of the temple, right? So in the temple in Jerusalem, there was a a most holy place where only the high priests could go, and that only once a year to offer atonement, offer sacrifice for the sins of the Jewish people. And there was a curtain, a thick curtain, about six inches thick and 40 or so feet high, okay? And uh, and at Jesus, and that, that curtain separated the holy of holies, the most holy place from the more common area where any of the priests could go in the temple that God's holiness would not be broached uh, inappropriately by those that might go through. And at Jesus' death, this veil that separates God from man is torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that there is no longer any division between God and man, that in Jesus' death, the final and perfect payment for sin is made. And through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, all mankind has access to the Father. The first thing that happens at his death. Second thing, the centurion who is present gives this final and closing confession of Jesus' identity, which which we've already read. Surely this, truly this man was the Son of God. His confession mirrors what Mark says in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, and this coming from the mouth of a pagan Roman Gentile. Not a God-fearer, not a Jew, but he sees Jesus in the way that he dies, and he cannot but say, truly this man was the Son of God. At the sight of Christ's death, he cannot but see who Jesus really is. There's no veil in the temple. There's no veil in front of the centurion's eyes. He sees Jesus for exactly who he is. Jesus is taken down off the cross after he dies. He's hurriedly buried in a, in a borrowed tomb because it's, the Sabbath is approaching and not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So they've got to get Jesus into the tomb quickly. And there's a day of silence on the Sabbath where we don't hear anything. Nothing happens. In Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, we read this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him, anoint Jesus, uh, anoint his body. Very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is good news. The Gospel of Mark ends on undoubtedly good news, that Jesus is not dead, he is risen. After burying Jesus, waiting through the Sabbath, these three women who followed and served with Jesus go to tend to his body, to bury him properly. When they arrive, they find no body. Not nobody, but nobody. Because there's somebody in the tomb, but it's not nobody. There's nobody, but there's somebody. It's an angel who says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus. He was crucified, right? He was dead, but he's not here. He's risen. See where they laid him. And now go tell the disciples. Oh, Mark's gospel ends on such good news. We don't get in Mark's gospel the the appearance of Jesus to the disciples and other things. Well, Okay, brief excursus. Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. In your Bibles, do you guys have brackets around those verses? Okay, do you have a little note above those verses? It should say something like, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. Okay. Oh, I'm going to try to do this briefly. 
In the early day, in ancient days, when the Bible was written and being passed around among churches, this is what would happen. So Mark would have written his gospel. He would have sent it off and it would have gone to a church and the church would have read it aloud in their gathering. Uh, and somebody would said, this is really good. We need a copy for ourselves. And so they would diligently sit down and write out word for word uh, that copy of Mark's gospel. And so they'd have a copy for themselves and the copy they received, they would pass on. And then the next church would make a copy the same way. And so these copies began to also be circulated. Well, as time goes by, some of the disciples are, or other believers in the church are remembering maybe something that Jesus said. And as a copy of Mark's gospel comes through, they're like, this is really good. We need this for ourselves. So they copy it all down and they get to the end. They go, oh, but also some other things happened, didn't they? And then so they add in some of those other things. And some of the things that were added later on after Mark originally wrote his gospel were these things in Mark chapter 9, verse 20. Now, most of the reason... So let me say this, and I'm going to try to say this without getting myself in trouble. Mark 16, 9 through 20, were not most likely part of what Mark originally wrote in his gospel. Okay? Not a part of the original, the, the first edition manuscript of Mark's gospel. They were added later. Okay? And we believe in the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. Um, but at the same time, we also recognize that there are some people who uh, unwittingly or unintentionally added things to it that were not intended to be there in the first place. Okay, so John chapter eight is is another uh, is another example of this, where the earliest manuscripts, those that were closest to Mark's original writing, don't have these verses. So, I'm going to say this, and 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 I, I try to tread lightly here. I don't think that Mark 16, 9 through 20 are, are actually part of Mark's gospel. Somebody else added them later. And so I'm not going to preach Mark 16, 9 through 20 uh, because I don't think it's what Mark intended when he wrote his gospel. Somebody else added it later. Now, whether these things actually happened or not is another thing we can debate altogether. And, some, and a similar sort of thing with John chapter 8. It may be that these events actually did happen, but Mark didn't include them when he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I'm not going to preach them as, they're holy, as though they were Holy Spirit inspired. So that's why I'm skipping and I'm... Uh, I'm um, moving past this and stopping at Mark chapter 16, verse 8. I'd be happy to talk with you more about textual criticism and how the Bible came to be later in another time. We just don't have time for it now. But Mark's gospel ends with the risen Jesus. And that is good news. That is good news. It doesn't end with a whole lot of other stuff. Mark's gospel is short and it's fast, but there's purpose. To it. Mark is giving us the essentials of the gospel. Everything you must know about Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God is in Mark's gospel. Everything you must know, that he came, that he demonstrated his authority, that he was the Christ, the Son of God, that he came to suffer for the sins of man on the cross, and that he was not, he did not remain in the tomb dead, but that he is risen, King of kings, Lord of lords, with all authority over all things. That's Mark's gospel. So now, as we read Mark's gospel and we respond to it, as we apply it to our lives and try to live in consistency with it, how do we respond to Mark's gospel? What do we do with this Jesus? First, see that Jesus is the Son of God. See it. That's what Mark wants you to see. That's what Mark is intending that you understand. That's what the Holy Spirit and inspiring Mark wanted to communicate to you and I, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. See it. Secondly, believe that Jesus died and was raised again. Mark wants us to know that Jesus died for our sins and was raised again. So see that he's the Son of God. Believe that he rose from the dead. Third and finally, Responding to the gospel, turn from your sin and trust Jesus. Turn from your sin and trust Jesus. Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark's gospel is not about giving us tips for living a productive life or being a good neighbor or whatever. Mark's gospel is concerned with showing us who Jesus is and what we must do in response to this man that we see that he's the son of God, that we believe that he died and was raised again to pay for our sins and to secure for us eternal life, and that we, in response to him, must turn from our sin and trust him for salvation. As you read Mark's gospel, remind yourself of the gospel, of what Christ has done for you.